Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Sam Explaining Science. I'm Sam, I'm your host. I'll be Sam Explaining the Science. This week, we're talking about consciousness. It's kind of weird if you think about it because we're getting conscious of our consciousness, becoming aware of our awareness. It's a little trippy, <laughs> but let's get into it. Hi everyone, how's it going? I hope you're doing well. This week we're getting a double feature of Sam Splitting Science to make up for the fact that I fell one week one week behind last week. Um, so there's going to be two episodes this week. Today's episode will be about consciousness, like I mentioned, and then another episode will be coming out later this week, probably on Friday or Saturday. Um, and there we're going to talk about meditation. So they kind of are related. They kind of go hand in hand. So, um, I figure the week where I put out two episodes can be somewhat related episodes. Um, but yeah, with that being said, we can jump right into this week's questions. As I said, we're talking about consciousness this week. So we have three questions the first question is, what is consciousness? Um, and what are different ways to like classify consciousness? Um, the second question is, how can we study consciousness? Like what sorts of techniques and technologies are out there that allow us to learn about and understand consciousness? And then the third question is, what brain regions are important in consciousness? And as always, the sources are listed in the episode description. So let's start with this first question. What is consciousness or like how are different ways we can classify consciousness? So I think of consciousness as like being aware of your surroundings such that you can detect and respond to external stimuli, right? Because you think of like, somebody who's unconscious, they're not responsive, right? They're not aware of their surroundings. They're not able to respond to external stimuli. So when I think of consciousness, I think of the opposite. I think of someone who is aware, someone who is, um, you know, involved in interacting with their surroundings. Um, but in a review article that's linked below um, by Dr. Frith, he defines consciousness as having subjective experiences. In Dr. Frith's paper, there are two separate sort of topics that he discusses in particular when describing consciousness. One is the level of consciousness and the other is the content of consciousness. So let's break down each of these. So level of consciousness is basically how aware and how responsive are we to our surroundings. So that's sort of like when I thought of how to define consciousness, that's sort of the first thing that I thought of was like, am I responsive? Am I aware? Things like that. So for level of consciousness, lots of studies sort of classify it on a scale. So basically, are we wide awake or are we in a coma? And then there's like different stages in the middle, right? So we could be wide awake or we can be awake, but sort of like 
zoning out, daydreaming. Or we could be asleep where we're not awake, obviously, when you're asleep. But you can be awoken, right? Like it's not a permanent or it's not like a you're stuck in this unconscious phase. Um, so like deep sleep is also on this scale of consciousness. Um, and then, you know, being in a vegetative state where patients don't respond to external stimuli, but they still have the brain waves that um, look like sleep wake cycles. Um, there's a previous episode, I think it was episode two, where we talked about sleep wake cycles. Um, so if you're interested, you can check that out. Um, so there's like a vegetative state where they're not responsive, but their brains are still active in some way. And then there's comatose, um, which is when a patient is like completely unresponsive, um, no brain activity, things like that. Um, and previous studies have shown that the brain activity and states of coma and vegetative states are reduced compared to fully conscious, fully awake individuals. And this has been seen in both EEG studies and in studies that measure metabolic activity in the brain. When the brain is in a lower conscious or unconscious state, metabolic activity is reduced. And what we mean by metabolic activity is sort of this, it's similar or analogous to energy expenditure. So when our cells, our brain cells, our muscle cells, anything, um, need energy, they take glucose usually um, and they metabolize it or they break it down in the presence of oxygen. And that process of breaking down glucose within the presence of oxygen to make energy um, is what provides the energy for our brains to fire nerve signals or our muscles to relax and contract. So when there's not a lot of activity, when our brain cells aren't firing lots of signals, um, our brain cells don't really need that much energy. So it doesn't break down as much glucose. It doesn't need as much oxygen. Um, so the metabolism rates decrease. And we'll come back to this in the next part also, so just keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, so for the level of consciousness, I mentioned that there's sort of the scale of like comatose to wide awake. But this scale has also been sort of criticized in consciousness literature, and there's some studies that take it as more than just like a linear scale of your conscious level. Um, there's a little more like trippy conversations instead of being a linear scale of energy alertness um, for consciousness some studies use scales that include um, a more dimensional dynamic approach and they consider sort of like in between states of consciousness um they also include things like having a blissful state of consciousness or considering anxiety a, a uh, form of consciousness. 
Um, also having impaired control and cognition, right? So if you're like under the influence of drugs or alcohol, you might be responding, but you might not be wide awake. You might not be in your right state of mind, quote unquote. Um, and then also things like disembodiment <clears throat> can be considered sort of on this scale, this multidimensional scale of consciousness. Um, and some of these studies have used um, psychoactive drugs as a way to classify these altered states of consciousness. Um, the, the direct quote from the paper, Dr. Frith's paper, is multidimensional consciousness, which sounds pretty trippy. Um, but yeah, they use drugs like um, morphine or opium or LSD, which each target different neuro neurotransmitter systems in the brain. So um, there are some studies that talk about how psychoactive drugs can affect our level of consciousness and what sorts of neurotransmitters are responsible for those reactions that we have. So yeah, that's sort of the baseline of like how levels of consciousness have been defined um, or what levels of consciousness have been defined. The other topic that um, Dr. Frith mentioned was this sort of idea of content of consciousness. So it's like what exactly are we experiencing and how are we reacting to those experiences? How are you responding to what's happening around us? And this is sort of like a specific conscious state or like a state consciousness. And it's important to think about because sometimes an action or a behavior can occur without us con consciously choosing to do that action. It's sort of like almost a reflex, but reflexes are different. But like when you subconsciously do something as like it's out of a habit, right? Like I, I maybe I shouldn't admit this on, you know, on audio, but like, have you ever driven somewhere and then you like get to the parking lot and you're like, whoa, how did I get here? <laughs> like you didn't, I mean, you followed the rules of the road, but it was just sort of like a natural, like, habit of like, oh, yeah, I know I see a red light, so I'm going to stop. And you don't have to consciously say, I'm moving my foot over to the brake now. You just sort of do it as like muscle memory almost, right? And it's not like you're not paying attention while you're driving. Like, of course, your like, eyes are on the road and everything. But it's just like when you're approaching a red light, you're not... Your thought process isn't, oh, I see a red light is coming. I'm going to move my foot from the gas to the brake. It's like you just do it without thinking about it, you know? And that's sort of like this whole state consciousness idea of like, although we are awake and aware and responsive, we're not always super intentional, super aware of what we're doing, if that makes sense. Um, but there have been some scientific studies about, um, like the contents of consciousness by testing to see how people react 
to certain stimuli, whether it be like auditory or like sound stimuli or visual stimuli or things like that. And um, it's an interesting thing to do. And we're kind of getting into the second question now. Um, But like you can put someone in a controlled environment in a lab and have them say like, okay, we're going to do this task. And like, you have to concentrate on this task. And assuming that the task is you know, interesting enough and easy enough where people can follow along with it. It's, you can look at their brains, however their brains are acting and get an idea of how the brain is in a state of consciousness and state consciousness, right? When they're forced to make a choice or when they're forced to complete a task, um, like what does the brain look like? What does the brain activity look like in those conditions? which is pretty cool. Okay, so I kind of got a little ahead of myself, but hopefully that was a good sort of like primer overview on consciousness and how it's classified and how we can think about it when we are studying consciousness in the lab setting. The next question was, um, how can we study consciousness? So I chose to talk about two ways that we can use to study how the brain is activated, how the brain works during um, different phases of consciousness. So the two ways are EEG and MRI. And EEG we talked a little bit about in the sleep episode, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but just as a refresher, electroencephalography, still can't say that word, but EEG um, uses electrodes that are placed all over, all around your scalp. And these electrodes can pick up the electrical signals that are running through your brain that cause the um, release of neurotransmitters. It's essentially the the brain signaling across different regions. Um, So you can measure brain activity based on how rapid or how slow these electrical signals are repeating. Um, The waves or like the fluctuations of electrical signals can come in all different shapes and all different frequencies. And that tells you a lot about the degree and the strength of the activation in the brain. Um, So that's EEG. Another way that we can measure consciousness in the brain is with MRI. MRI stands for magnetic resonance imaging, and maybe you've gotten an MRI before, but if you haven't, um, they basically put you in this huge machine, which is essentially a magnet. And without getting too deep into the physics, um, every magnet has a magnetic field, right? So there's like a positive end of the magnet and a negative end of the magnet. And it's polarized because one side is positive and one side is negative. So when we lay down inside of this magnet, all of our charged particles in our body, so like protons and hydrogen ions that are in our body, align with the magnetic field. So they line up along the magnet that we're laying inside. So like essentially pointing from head to toe. And then in the scanner they use what's called radio frequency coils. Um, And these radio frequency coils can disrupt the direction of our 
protons of our hydrogen ions. And then um, that disruption causes the hydrogen ions to face a different way. And then once the, once the um, coils stop disrupting the hydrogen ions, the hydrogen ions will retake their original direction facing like head to toe. Um, and they return back to the laying in line with the magnetic field. And we call that a radio frequency pulse. So with MRI and with these radio frequency pulses, we can measure things like how long it takes for the hydrogen ions to get back to the way they were lined up with before the pulse. Um, and that tells us a lot about the type of tissues that are located in the body and where they're located with respect to like the rest of the scanner. So like to explain a little better, proteins in bone tissue relax or return to normal after the pulse at a different rate than protons in muscle tissue does or fat tissue does. So because of the differences in the relaxation rate, the images that we get from the MRI show bone, muscle, fat, air, etc., all at different intensities within the image. So some are brighter than others and some are darker than others. Um, and because of this difference in intensity, we can see things like tissue boundaries and tissue structures between bone and muscle or different ligaments or um, air and the body, things like that. So that's what we call a structural MRI because we can see the structure of the tissue in the image. So when we take a structural MRI of the brain, that means that we can see the different tissue types that make up the brain. So when we look at a picture of the brain, <clears throat> we can see a few different things, right? If we're looking at the full image, we can see the skull, the bone that makes the skull. Um, but then once we get into the skull, and we look at the actual cerebrum, which is the brain itself, um, we see gray matter and white matter. Um, and these are called gray matter and white matter because of how they show up in the MRI image. Um, so I'm not going to go off on an awful tangent because I could if I wanted to because I love the brain so much. But a short summary slash FYI, the gray matter in the brain is basically like it lines the outside of the brain. It's in like cortical and subcortical structures. It contains most of the neuronal cell components um, of the brain. We talked about a few weeks ago, like the neuron, the cell body, the dendrites, all that stuff are in the gray matter. Whereas the white matter is mostly the axons that project from the cell body to another neuron. Um, and those can be quite long because they're connecting brain cells across different regions so that nerve signals can travel across different areas of the brain. So the white matter is actually the long um, axons that connect different brain regions with uh, brain cells, with neurons. Um, so yeah, these structural MRIs show us where the gray and the white matter is in the brain. And from structural MRI, we can get a few measures that are useful, including 
um, volumetric measures, as we call them, which is basically we can measure how much gray matter or how much white matter there is in a certain area, or we can measure the entire volume of the brain, how much space the brain takes up, the brain tissue takes up. The review paper um, cited below by Dr. Snyder um, covers a lot of like MRI and consciousness. Um, but to put it this in the perspective of like the consciousness, like why we're talking about this in the first place, um, the review paper by Dr. Snyder cited um, that previous studies have shown gray matter volume loss, which is also known as atrophy, in patients who have been in a vegetative state compared to those with some awareness or in a minimally conscious state. Um, so with loss of consciousness for prolonged periods of time, there is brain volume loss or atrophy. In addition to structural MRI, we can also get um, more information from the same type of scanner, the same type of magnet. Um, and one of these types of additional information is a functional MRI or fMRI. So fMRI is similar to structural MRI because you sit in the magnet and you get pictures taken of your brain, but it's different in the way that it measures things in your brain uh, and it gives us much different information than things like brain structure. So instead of differentiating the structure of the tissue based on how the protons move through it. FMRI looks at how well the brain tissue is functioning by measuring the oxygen level across different regions of the brain. So it measures what we call the BOLD signal or the blood oxygen level dependent signal, BOLD. Um, and earlier in question one, I mentioned that energy is made in the brain by breaking down glucose in the presence of oxygen. So when there's a lot of energy being used and made, um, because when, it's, when energy is required, it will be made, our body's pretty cool like that and it knows when to make energy. Um, so when there's a lot of energy being made, there needs to be a lot of oxygen in that area so that when we break down glucose, we can make the energy. So we use the amount of oxygen in the blood uh, as a measure um, to see which regions of the brain are sending lots of nerves, nerve signals or are activated. In areas where there's a lot going on, there's a lot of neurons firing, there's a lot of energy being used, there needs to be a lot of oxygen to keep up with that energy demand. So in, if the bold signal, the blood oxygen level dependent signal is high in certain regions, um, that means that that energy uh, or that region is, requires a lot of energy at the time of scanning. Using these fMRI techniques, we can find that the activity in the brain or like the glucose metabolism in the brain um, before and after being exposed to a stimulus, right? So like when 
a person is in a scanner, they can have sort of this baseline level of bold signal. So the person's just laying there, not doing anything. And then um, the person in the scanner might be given a task, say, maybe tap your right foot, right? So the person will be tapping their right foot. And while they're tapping their right foot, the scanner will measure the bold signal again during the stimulus, during the task. And then you'll have that baseline value from before the task and the, you know, the during the task value of the bold signal. And in regions where the bold signal is increasing during the task, it's basically believe that, okay, those are the brain regions that are active during that task, meaning that those are the brain regions that are involved in the processing of that task and the completion of that task. So that's sort of like a typical paradigm of fMRI. It's basically like stimulus-based fMRI or functional MRI. So in Dr. Snyder's review, um, they mention one study using stimulus-based fMRI that found that in comatose patients, activation remained in the primary auditory cortex, which is the area of the brain that's responsible for integrating the sound stimulus that we hear from our ears as nerve signals. Um, But there was lower activation in the associative auditory cortex in coma patients compared to controls. So in other words, they took someone who was comatose put them in an fMRI scan or in an MRI scanner, collected the bold signal um, before and during an auditory stimulus. And that's literally just like talking to them, playing a song, something that will like stimulate the sound receptors in our ears to project to the neurons in the primary auditory cortex, which is the area of our brain that um, will process the initial sounds that we're hearing. And then um, the associative auditory cortex is a region that helps convert the sounds that we hear into like meaningful sounds and words, right? So basically in coma patients, they're able to do like the first step of like hearing and having the sound that comes into our ears Um, go to the primary auditory cortex where we like receive the sound stimulus and start to process it. But it's when they had to go to the next level of the associative auditory cortex where um, we translate those sounds into words that mean something to us that they were unable to activate those regions of their brain. Those those regions were um, not active based on the amount of oxygen in those regions during the sound stimulus. My chair's squeaky today. Um, Okay. So hopefully that's clear. I don't know. It's kind of (laughs) complicated. Honestly, I myself am sort of, it's, it's trippy to think about, but, um, There's one other thing that I want to talk about before we move on from fMRI, and that's that we can do fMRI and like measure the bold signal 
without a stimulus. Um, and this is called resting state fMRI. Um, it shows us the oxygen level in areas of the brain at rest, hence resting state. Um, we can measure the bold signal across the brain at rest and see which regions across the brain have fluctuations that mimic each other or that are like highly related to one another. And that suggests that those regions are working and resting together. And we call that functional connectivity. Um, so although these brain regions might not be right next to each other, they might not be like physically connected, they're working together, they're functionally connected to one another. Um, so with this resting state, fMRI can show us networks of the brain that work together when there's no external stimulus, like when we're just sort of like chilling, you know, like we're not asleep, we're awake, we're, we're conscious, but we're just not like asked to do a task or asked to, you know, move our foot or read a word or anything. It's just, you're at rest. So yeah, these technologies like fMRI, like EEG, can show us how the brain functions both during conscious actions, like completing tasks and responding to stimuli, as well as at rest. Um, and that, of course, is useful during periods of unconsciousness. Um, because, of course, if someone is comatose or in a vegetative state, you can't ask them to tap their foot because they won't be able to. Um, but we can look at their like resting state fMRI networks and see um, which parts of their brain are still functioning or still aware. Um, so, okay. Now let's go on to question number three. So question number three is which brain regions play a role in consciousness? So I believe it was Dr. Frith's uh, review paper that went into a lot of detail about different types of um, paradigms for studying the contents of consciousness as far as like visual consciousness or auditory consciousness and so on. Um, so he kind of broke down a lot of the, like by region, which regions are responsible for different parts of the consciousness. Um, so like, for example, he talked about visual consciousness and being aware of what we see. And there's a lot known about like visual activation, um, in conscious people. It's very easy to study in a, in a scanner, in an fMRI scanner. Um, cause we can show people a blank screen, right? And then we can show people, um, a photo in grayscale, and then we can show people um, a photo that's colored in. And we can see how the brain regions respond to each of these different photos, each of these different screens. And then from this, scientists can identify which brain regions are responsible for different parts of like visual awareness and visual consciousness. So for example, the fusiform cortex, which is part of the temporal lobe, temporal lobe is near your temples, it starts sort of like around your ear, a little in front of your ear, and then it goes towards the back of your head. But the fusiform cortex is in like the bottom of the temporal lobe, 
And studies have shown that um, the fusiform area is active when we look at faces as well as more complex forms and shapes, right? So if you're just looking at like a flat circle, that's not very complex. But if you're looking at someone's face, which has a lot of features, it has maybe, you know, different shaped noses, smile, freckles, you know, it, it, it's more complex. So it, the facial, the visual awareness of people's faces is processed in the fusiform cortex. Um, the visual cortex is located in the occipital lobe, which is at the back of your head. And there's a couple different divisions of the visual cortex. One part um, in particular is responsible for visual motion. That's the V5MT region of the visual cortex. So when we see things moving, um, you know, when we see, I don't know, I'm trying to think of anything that moves. <laughs> I was going to say a movie, I guess, yeah. Birds flying, cars driving. When things move, that's the part of the brain that is aware of that and, and processes that information as like, oh, that's moving. How fast is it moving? Is it moving towards me or away from me? That type of processing is done there. Um, another part of the visual cortex is called the striate cortex, and that's responsible for more simple visual forms. So if you're just looking at flat, a picture of a flat circle or just like bland, not very complex things, um, the striate cortex in the visual cortex is responsible for that. And then there's another part of the visual cortex called the extra striate visual cortex, um, and that's responsible for experiencing color and motion. So that's sort of the, the breakdown of visual consciousness and a few examples of different parts of the brain that process uh, visual awareness and visual consciousness. For the sense of touch, studies have shown that um, the brain region that's most responsible for experiencing touch is the primary somatosensory cortex, and that's located in the parietal lobe. I always think of it as if you're wearing like over-ear headphones, the strap that connects the ears is basically exactly where your primary somatosensory cortex is. And that will basically help us process physical feeling and like physical touch. It's so like if we're touching something or if something hits us or touches us, our nerve processing occurs in the primary somatosensory cortex. Um, another important region though in the sense of feeling or the sense of touch is the anterior insula. Um, which is closer to like the center, middle-ish part of your brain. Um, the anterior insula is believed to play a role in what they call, quote, interoceptive experience. Basically like being aware of your body state. It's like you're feeling your mouth is dry, you're thirsty, or, you know, your heart is beating fast and you can feel your heartbeat. Like that's sort of feeling is processed in um, 
the anterior insula. So those are just two sort of like visual awareness, visual consciousness, and somatosensory consciousness are just two of the examples that Dr. Frith outlined in his um, paper, in his review. Um, But he also notes that the activity in these regions are also coupled with parts of the frontal cortex, which is at the front of your head, and the parietal cortex, which is right behind that. And um, that's because a lot of the secondary processing is done in those regions. So earlier, the example I gave about the primary auditory and then the associative auditory cortices, um, a lot of the associative regions for all of our senses are in the parietal regions or in the frontal regions. So because, yes, we see, um, you know, let's let's say we see a baseball flying at us, we can see that in our visual cortex and we can see the motion, the visual motion, thanks to our um, V5MT and our extra-striate visual cortex that help us see motion. Um, but there's another part of our brain, our motor cortex, which is in our frontal lobe, that will tell us to duck, that will make our body duck down, or will make our body reach our arm out and catch the ball. Um, So there's like the sensory regions of our brain, the somatosensory, the visual, the auditory, all the things that have like sensory processes in our brain have associative regions that further process the reception of those senses, right? If we're seeing something flying at us, if we feel something touch us, um, you know, if if we hear a loud noise, it's the initial sensing that happens in the primary regions, but then it's the reaction that we have that takes place in the associative regions. And a lot of those associative regions, like I said, are in the frontal and the parietal cortex. So because we have to react fast in a lot of situations, otherwise evolutionarily we would have died. So because we needed that fast reaction, those regions are all very tightly coupled together. They form a network, right? They, they're very connected and they know, you know, they have to act fast. They have to send really quickly, send a nerve signal from the primary to the associative of whatever sense we're talking about. I completely went off of my, um, I completely went off track of my notes I just get too excited about the brain and then I don't know what to do with myself. Let me see here. Um, Oh, and then um, now I know where I am. Okay. Um, So Dr. Fritz Review gave a couple of examples um, and cited some studies talking about how important the frontal and parietal regions are to overall awareness and overall consciousness. So Dr. Frith's review cites a study that shows that if someone has a lesion in their parietal lobe, um, and a lesion just means like a, um, 
what's the word I'm thinking of? Oh my God. A lesion is like a malformation. That's not a word, is it? A lesion is um, a region in an organ or tissue that has suffered damage through to injury or disease, such as a wound, ulcer, abscess, or tumor. Thanks, Google. Putting the words together that I could not. I appreciate you. Um, ooh, speaking of consciousness, did we hear that Google's AI is, like, aware? Like, Google's AI is conscious. And someone got fired because he, like, told people about it. He tried to warn us. Anyway, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But if you can hear me, Google AI, I hope you're having a great day. I hope you always find what you're looking for and you never, ever, ever have to sit in traffic and you never, ever, ever have to... Um, you know, deal with anything bad. I just hope you're always well, and I hope I always stay on your good side, okay? I love you. Next, we're going to talk about lesions. We're still talking about lesions. My goodness. Okay, so in Dr. Frith's review, um, he cited a study that talked about if someone had a lesion in an area of their parietal lobe, um, but the, re the lesion did not affect the visual centers of the brain in the back, um, the patient could still have a loss of awareness of visual stimuli. Um, not that they aren't seeing the visual stimuli because their visual receptors and the visual parts of their brain can still be active. It's just that they aren't processing them in the region of the parietal lobe where the lesion is. Pretty wacky. The brain is, in a word, it's wacky. It is. So the vision centers of their brain are activated when they're shown a visual stimulus, but the processing parts of the brain in the parietal cortex that are actually supposed to tell the patient what they're seeing, um, that's not functional because of the lesion. So it just sort of emphasizes the importance of the, the processing regions of the associative visual cortex in the parietal regions that how important that is to consciousness and being aware of what we're seeing. Um, so pretty interesting, pretty cool. There's one other thing that I want to mention that's not really, not that it's not relevant, but um, it wasn't really well defined in the review articles, but it's something that I've learned in like school and stuff. And I think we're going to get to it more in the meditation episode that's going to come out in a couple days. Um, but there is one network in our brain or like a, a collection of regions in the brain that work together. That's called the default mode network. Um, and basically the DMN, the default mode network consists of a bunch of different brain regions, I'll list them off. The posterior cingulate cortex, which is just underneath the prefrontal cortex. Um, the medial prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and the lateral temporal areas. 
And it's believed that these regions all play an important role in periods of, quote, wakeful rest. It's like when you're awake, but like your mind is wandering or you're daydreaming, you're just sort of like in an in-between between like you're not super focused, you're not wide awake, but you're like aware, but are you? <laughs> um, it's one of those like in-between phases. Um, like you can be pulled back to focus when someone is like, hey, Sam, and you're like, whoa, hi, yeah, I'm awake, I'm here. Um, or like when you hear someone in the other room talk about ordering pizza and you're like, wait, someone say pizza? Um, but like, otherwise you're just sort of like thinking about pizza until, you know, someone tells you that they're going to order it. You're just thinking about pizza the whole time when you're supposed to be doing anything else, writing, reading, exercising, just thinking about pizza right? That's my default mode network. My default mode, pizza. This episode is brought to you by pizza. Just kidding. Okay. Anyway, this episode has really just devolved. It started off like I was really sticking to my notes. I feel like I was on a good track and then I just completely lost my mind. (laughs) Ironic, isn't it? Not really because I'm still conscious, but I'm just... Mm, am I? Anyway, to answer question three, the question was which parts of the brain are most responsible for consciousness? I would say the whole darn thing is responsible. (laughs) Um, It seems like the entire cerebrum, which is, you know, the frontal, temporal, parietal, and occipital lobes, um, they all play a big part in it, in being conscious and being aware and being able to react to our surroundings and being able to, yeah, just like be aware, interact with our surroundings. I'm losing it again. Anyway, the brain is wild. It's so complicated. It has so many different parts, so many different things that it does. Um, But I hope this episode sort of gave some insight into that and like realizing how much of our brain we use to just be alive and be conscious of the world that we live in. Um, So yeah, hopefully that was interesting to you and hopefully you learned a little bit. Maybe it just made you appreciate how cool your brain is in allowing you to like do what you do, to sense what you sense, to be conscious of what you're conscious of. Um, to interact with your surroundings the way that you do. It's very, very cool that your brain does that um, the way that it does. So thanks, brains. <laughs> all right, that is all for this episode. Please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Sai. You can connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. You can also submit your questions at samsplainingscience.com slash ask. So if you have any questions or anything that you want Sam Splain to you, ask away. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you later this week. Bye.